Hello and welcome back. This is Colin Keeley here. And I'm Brent Sanders. We are two guys buying and building wonderful internet companies. And we're changing the name of the podcast. <laughs> That's the Indie acquisitions. Thing. Yeah. No longer. We got a bunch of questions or I was getting a lot of questions around like, you guys still focus on creators at all? It's like, not really. Like that was kind of a legacy name and we don't have an enormous following yet. So figured it'd be better to you know, rebrand around something that we're actually talking about. So Indie acquisitions. I like it. I like the indie part of it. That was the, uh, some of the other names were, I mean, it's hard to name things in general, but I like the indie part of it feels hardcore. feels like, <laughs> feels like we're still, uh, you know, grassroots, which I feel is accurate. You know, that's how I feel about this is like, we're not, you know, a, a big PE firm or even like a traditional one by any means. It's, it's very uh, unorthodox, or at least I'd like to think so. Yeah, I feel like it's approachable, like acquisitions and mergers and acquisitions. Like that's all seems so intimidating and like building empires and corporate raiders. And India is just like, you know, other people can do this. It's not like the, there's words that maybe people don't know. And, you know, I'm trying to make it more approachable with my course and people could do that. But uh, I think India encapsulates what we're doing pretty well. Yeah. So I feel like moving forward, we got to update everything. I mean, like you said, it's not like we have a huge following. They'll figure it out. But yeah, it, it, it'll be uh, interesting to see if we start creating again. And then we're going to have to you know, balance that because it's like we, we've been talking about kind of a mix over the last what, year of just like this mix of cash flow versus uh, investment or you know, these acquisitions and, and balancing those two things. So I wonder if the, there will be like a pendulum that kind of crosses back and then we start right when we change the name, we're going to start creating stuff again. But I, we, <laughs> yeah. we vowed not to, right? We're not, we're not going there. Yeah. I like, so creators is mostly like putting content out there and it made sense when we had an audio course business that we're focused on. I want to get back to it. I feel like this year I kind of fell off. Maybe we were working on a couple acquisitions and I just wasn't tweeting. We weren't really podcasting. I want to get back to it. I feel like once you take time off Twitter, like your distribution just gets crushed. So you don't really lose followers, but Twitter doesn't prioritize your content as much or doesn't like distribute it out. So I was going to next week, like get back to posting things, you know, once a day or, a, you know, a couple times a week or something like that. Got it. Yeah. You know, I've had that like urge to get better at Twitter. I'll be honest. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm a lurker. Like I read it every now and then, but uh, yeah, it's, you're right. It's a ton of, you can't do it half-ass. You can't do it like throw a, a, a quip out there once a month and expect anybody to to see it like you need to be thoughtful about it and basically have a, a depth of content that you're distributing i mean that's what what's attractive about it yeah i feel like twitter just punished me for taking time off like active engagement for the last week or two weeks or something it must be a criteria because it definitely hurts and now i'm like feel like i'm starting from a lower point I also find it just, it's really hard to get back into tweeting once you've like taken time off. Like once you're in the habit of just firing things off as they like come through your head, it's easier to write. But if you don't do it, it's like, I don't even know, what am I going to write? What am I going to write this thread on? I don't have any ideas. Uh, there you go. Now, now you know how I feel. I, I, I feel, <laughs> I feel heard. Yeah, yeah. It's just not a priority for me right now, but maybe one day, I mean, there's a, a cool aspect of connecting with people that is you know, encouraging, but it's, I just, I, I'll come across a post that pisses me off or bothers me or like, you know, it's just a backwards place. It's a, it's kind of a dumpster fire. So on that note, 
this week, Elon Musk offered to buy it. He put up, uh, what was the the bid? 41, 40, 40 something billion? Yeah. I don't have it in front of me. 43-ish billion. I think it was like a 30% premium over the current price. But yeah, so Twitter for basically its entire life has been pretty horrible at being a business and just like super powerful as like a, a product and like public good for the world. It's always been called, I think Zuckerberg said it first, a clown car that fell into a gold mine. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just such a good description of like, they immediately hit on product market fit and basically didn't improve or touch the product for like 15 years. Like they just worked on stability of keeping things up and running. Yeah, because it used to shit the bed all the time. And you know, remember the fail whale days and that was like 2006 or something, 2007. I remember you had that really goofy, <laughs> the goofy logo and the whale that was, you know, getting, it was showing up a lot. And then they did a major change. They, they basically implemented some serious scaling changes that, you know, got them to the point that they're on now, which on the engineering side is a hot button issue. And also on the product side is this, this, why isn't there an edit button? And I think that's directly related to why you don't see the fail well as often is like allowing you to, <laughs> they built a distribution network for, for messages that's incredibly complex and high performance to the point where it works, where, you know, presidents and global leaders use it and their messages get out in real time. Right. And, and having this, this edit feature that people think, Oh, why don't you just, just add the button, put it on the page. It's like, holy shit, how do you then go back through that distribution network and update it? You know, you can delete tweets. So maybe it's just that maybe you can, you know, delete and repost, but this idea that it's within a timeline, it's like trying to rewrite a blockchain, right? It's a, I, it's like a link list where, you know, it's hard to reorder. So I, that's the one thing that he's said that I'm like, oh my God, this is the next, you know, self-driving is going to be out or, but it, it's, it's cool to see that he, he made this offer and I think he would probably improve the product. I don't know. I, it, it can only get better. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't see how you can't improve it. Like, I mean, their way they make money is their ad product, like selling mm -hmm. ads. And I've used it and I've tried to give them more money. It's the hardest thing in the world to use. Yeah. It's yeah. like, I, it's just impossible. It's crazy that like, this is their one core job and they fail so badly at it. I think it's, you know, so the, the criticisms that you see on this platform or around the platform is like the censorship of it or the moderation of it, which is laughable because of the scale, like you just can't, you need people to do it. You can't build AI that does it. You know, you can't code those things when the nuances of speech are involved, like machine learning's just, frankly, it's not that good, you know, at, at scale, you can do it and, and train it and it can catch maybe some people, but it's going to catch some people that inadvertently get caught up in the in the censorship which i think i really think that's just what the product has been focused on and which is why you know it's a free website that you can go to and, and talk to anybody it's, it's truly remarkable remarkable that it is still continued to be free and scale to the point that it has because you see like come on you you see donald trump started his own thing and there was gab and there was there was one other one that that everyone's going to run to because they were uh, the right wingers were getting, um, you know, muted or I forget what they called it, where it's like they're basically getting silenced or deplatformed of some sort. And so, but all these other competitors have popped up and they all fail miserably because they run into the same scaling issues or they were under engineered. 
I mean, it's, I think they've emphasized a, like, hey, we're, we're just going to build this amazing machine and now somebody's going to come around and monetize it. But I don't know if it's that simple because I think the beauty of it is this like global broadcast, that ability to broadcast out quickly in real time to everybody. It's just amazing how it's done. And uh, yeah, that that's its, its true calling. This idea that you throw subscriptions on it, I don't, I don't know. Like I could totally see people wanting to promote content and that also degrading the product. Like, you know, you, you can pay right now to promote your posts and it does degrade the experience. I get promoted shit in my feed all the time. It's like some guy hawking some alternative investments and it's just like, oof. So if you're going to go down that path, this I, I wonder where you go with subscriptions. Well, I think you could do an ad product. I mean, the targeting is just abysmal. They have so much information. Targeting could be a million times better. I, like, I think you could easily fire most people at Twitter, 90% of people, and not lose a lot. And then just bring over people from Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok. Like every other major social network has just run laps around them and just steal like exactly how their ad platforms function. I don't think it's uh, crazy to think that this could be significantly more profitable. So that's on the advertising front. I also think you could charge, you know, people like me or people a lot more popular than me on Twitter, like a premium. You could charge, you know, $100 a month for some pro features and a lot of people would be really happy to pay for them. You yeah. Know, like one a, bigger a, thing a, is like messages are just not very good. Yeah. Well, like a sales navigator, right? Like a, yeah. give me a search interface and I will literally pay you a hundred. I mean, think of it for like lead generation too. It's like, it can be a very, very, very useful tool, but the interface in APIs or, you know, however you have to do it, you have to do it in a very low level way right now. And it's like, I feel like LinkedIn did a great job at that. It's like, Hey, we know people want to use this for cold emailing and outreach and like, we're going to embrace it and have them pay us. And, you know, you get access to some of these goofy features, but there are ways that you can be spending hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a month on LinkedIn. People will gladly oh, yeah. give you money for Yeah. These networks. So that's always a joke of, well, just start your own platform. Like almost right. no amount of money. It would make that, you know, you could overpower the network effects of Twitter or LinkedIn. Like LinkedIn is a yeah. horrible product but no one's ever going to dethrone it, or at least not for a while. Like everyone's just on there. The network effects are too powerful. It's too valuable uh, to use because everyone's already there. Yeah. My other like off the wall idea. So if I you know, was Elon and bought this, I would bring back Vine and I would make it a pixel for pixel copy of TikTok, like exactly down to everything and launch it as a separate product, a separate app called Vine. And then I would lobby the US government as hard as possible, spend like <laughs> you know, as much money as you can to get TikTok banned. Yeah. It's like China connection. I don't know why oh, no one has done that yet. I think that's just like <laughs> such a no brainer. Um, and TikTok's just a beautiful product. It feels like it's taken over everything, but it probably or definitely shouldn't exist in the US because we can't have our apps in China. So it'd just be fair that way. Yeah. You know, I loved Vine. I don't know if you remember that back in the day, but yeah, I think that somebody needs to bring Vine back, just revive it. And because it, it was. I mean, TikTok is its own thing and it has its own algorithms. I'll be honest. I haven't spent a whole lot of time just out of fear that like I will succumb to it and just be, you know, everybody <laughs> that I hear that has like the first experience with it is like hours into it. And it's just like a, a total suck. Oh, it's yeah. It's well, way too well done. Way too addicting. So I downloaded <laughs> for like a day and delete it. I haven't had it on my phone in like you know six months, but 
if you want to see like a very, very well done product, that's probably the best one out there. Yeah. So cool. You know, Elon's going to take over Twitter. What else do you see on Twitter? So the other kind of interesting thing in our space, so around two years ago, Bear Metrics is like, it was a famous indie product made by Josh Pigford. And so it was like a really nice way for software founders to look at their analytics. And this was bought by Xenon Partners around two years ago for, I can't remember, it was like four or $5 million. And Josh has a really nice blog post kind of explaining the whole process and how the deal was structured and everything. And since then, so they have just continued to compound, done pretty well. But then April 1st, they doubled or tripled the prices across the board. And mm. so they went from like roughly 200,000 MRR to 400,000 MRR, basically overnight. Brilliant. Yeah, it's super interesting. And so the cool thing here is that they're one of the open startups. So all their metrics are public. And so you could see their churn rate and everything. And churn was something, it was like 9%, but effectively the revenue doubled overnight. So the revenue doubled. So we're recording, it's April 15th. It's Good Friday. It's halfway through the month. They did it on April 1st. And just by the numbers, they've doubled revenue. So as of today, it's up 104%. Average revenue per user is up 101%. You know, the run rate as calculated 15 days into it is also, you know, as you'd expect up user churn, as you mentioned, is 6% revenue churns, 11%. The one that strikes me that really tells the tale to me of like what's going on is the refunds. So the refunds are up about a hundred percent. Oh yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. So uh, there's also a little bit of an uptick on coupons. So I wonder like this, the tail there is like, are they couponing folks, uh, you know, people getting pissed that, you know, maybe they missed as we've raised prices, you know, sometimes the person that pays the credit card and reaches out, Hey, I, you know, I didn't know that you guys were doing this. It's like, Hey, we emailed you like over a month ago and, and sent out multiple notices and they were never, you know, received. So the reality of comms and communication around this stuff is, is super difficult because for a lot of businesses, especially for this type of B2B software, like the end user and the person paying the bill are generally not the same person. So I looked into how they did it and it was a little slimy. So what they did was they sent an email maybe like two, three months ago saying, Hey, we're updating prices. And if you want to know what your new prices book, a 15 minute call with us. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, basically like very few people did that. So a lot of the way, a lot of people found out about the price increase was Josh, the, the former founders tweet that the price increases were happening and people looked in and like, Oh my God, like my, what I'm paying is doubled or tripled from there. And so they did see a bit of a dip because because of that tweet, like people saw it, but it seems like overall, I mean, obviously it's enormously successful and still up like hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it just shows the value of this product. So the product, by the way, you don't need it. It's definitely a vitamin. It, it is a bit of a painkiller, right? It's definitely like you can, Stripe has, if you're strictly on Stripe, it, it has like maybe the, the, thinnest layer of this for you. It'll tell your MRR, it'll tell you things like churn. This does a, a little bit, not a little, it does a significantly better job. It has a bunch of features on top of that. So it's like you can run an online business without it and still you know, know what's going on, but it's a testament to the value it's providing for folks. So if they're, by the way, these are likely customers that have you know been on the platform for a couple of years already, right? Like the ones that are, are just not going to churn. So it's sticky. It's just proving out that the model is 
as long as you're continuing to deliver value, you should continuously raise prices. I think this is probably, if you could ask like a, a business owner one question, like what would happen if you doubled prices overnight? And I think that is such a good way to check, not that whether you're gonna do it or not, but like how much value are you really providing? Like, are you providing that much over the competition that you could double prices and people still pay it like gladly? I think it's kind of shocking that the answer seems to be yes here. Cause there are probably five, like profit well is one that comes to mind of like direct competitors to bear metrics. Mm-hmm. You think it'd be pretty easy to switch to one of the others, but I don't know. It, maybe it's just ingrained in people's like workflow and they're happy to pay it. Yeah. I mean, there's also to your set, to your point, like the, the nature of doing it might've been a little slimy or maybe like, maybe it truly wasn't giving them the, the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it truly is a complex pricing change. And it's like, well, we, we really need to understand what your needs are. And if, you know, we have some flexibility and if you want to talk to us, maybe we can keep your existing credit, whatever. But the other aspect of it is like understanding that change cost and, and really pulling on that lever of like, okay, this is going to be an extra, I don't, again, I don't know their price points, like their average revenue. It sounds like it's what, around 500 a month. So it's like uh, two, 230 a month, 232 a month right now, it says. 232 a month. Got it. So, you know, the cost for someone to change and, you know, knowing the, the audience, it's like, if they're, they're companies that are making money online using this tool, they probably factor it into, you know, their time or the cost of, of somebody changing it. And then also having your metrics messed up versus like, all right, we're all making money here. This is going to take some small margin more it's like okay it's just easier so just knowing your your audience is i think a, a, a big part of this because i know a handful of businesses that you know you change the price by any amount and it's super sensitive and because the disposition of the end user for example in like retail products it's like changing prices for simple things it's it can be significant but for something like this, especially it's an analytics tool. It's, it's sort of a, a luxury in a sense. Like, I don't think people are going to, if you double or triple the price, I don't think it's that big of a difference, especially because um, there are so many bigger players. I don't know the space that well, but I, I would imagine there are bigger players that are just going to cost a lot more, have a setup fee. And it's like, okay, you know, playing against your, your market and just upping the, the price is generally a, a good, good place to go, especially if your, your business is delivering value continuously. Yeah. I want to retract my slimy statement. We actually know the guys at Xenon and I think they're nice guys. They're doing this at a very high level. They're like one of the original software private equity firms. So I, I think they're good people. I didn't mean to call them slimy. Uh, well, it's, it's sort of like the anti-pattern, right? It's an anti-pattern for, you know, cancellations, which, but by the way, like I, I, I canceled a, a DocuSign account the other day and it was like, I had to get on the phone with them. Like I, I, and it was literally a 45 oh, minute like phone that, call. Yeah. yeah. It was a 45 minute phone call. And the gentleman was telling me, and he was very nice, but uh, I don't know. I just stuck on my headphones and sat there and waited on hold. It took him 45 minutes to cancel the, not even cancel, <laughs> just to downgrade the account. And he was saying, I'm just taking very clear notes on the event now. And like, it made me think that the cancellation wouldn't work. So it's an anti-pattern. It's, it's a thing. Pe- it's a thing people do though. And sometimes it's like, Due to the product, which is my guess on DocuSign, is that it's just a giant legacy hunk of shit that there is no button for them to downgrade. They have to literally have somebody do it in the database or something awful. 
<laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think if you're forceful enough by email, I think he could get out of, I, I'm never on the phone to cancel. I would just send, you know, meaner and meaner emails until they do it for me. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> One other you know, thought on this biometrics thing. So you know, Josh was kind of live tweeting this to the former founder as this was all going down. And he was like, you know, is he, people are asking, like, are you bummed? Like he could have doubled revenue, you know, before selling and sold for twice as much. And he was basically saying no, because that was like, you know, 90 plus percent of his net worth. And this is kind of a major gamble to take. Like, just, yeah. you know, you don't want to you know, screw up your one huge asset. So it was kind of an example of what like a win-win situation is. So if you're Xenon, this is one of your many portfolio companies, and you could take this huge risk because the risk reward is you know, clearly worth it for you, but maybe not for an indie developer that hasn't had a big win yet. Yeah. Josh is uh, got a lot of flack for his sale price too, which I found another reason I was like, fuck Twitter. This is like, it's a bunch of nobodies screaming at this guy who had a great outcome. And the other cool fact, uh, I don't know if it's a testament to him or his venture capital firm, but like they wrote off his investment and let him, I think we talked about this in old podcast, but let him pocket the, the winnings, which yeah. is, is totally rad for like, you know, for a million bucks. I don't remember the outcome ones, but it was like, they probably could have taken some meaningful amount, maybe a half a million out of his, his payday, which would have been a huge deal for him, but not a big deal at all. And I, I just think about that as we talk with founders that have, maybe they did one round, but that was like six years ago. And like, will your, will your venture fund just write it off or, cause that for us could mean the difference between like, you know, getting a deal done and not getting a deal done. If the, the VC firm comes back and so oh, we did, we led your seed round or whatever. And we have some meaningful amount cause they only raised once. It's like, it's an interesting dynamic to see, but yeah, it was a couple of points there. One shitty to see the reaction to his like awesome win. And, but awesome to see that his, his VC firm like played ball with him. Yeah. So to give him a shout out. So he sold for 4 million. He had taken 800,000 in investor money from General Catalyst and Bessemer. And when this was progressing to a sale, General Catalyst and Bessemer said, hey, we'll just write it off to zero. Like you and the team keep all the money. And I think it's brilliant. I think this, I mean, this blog post is still pretty popular. It will live on forever as like General Catalyst and Bessemer are super founder friendly. So I think it's it really nice of them. And I also think it was a smart business decision, decision on their part to do it. Yeah. Funniest thing is like, you see this guy, he's been working on this business forever and he like semi-retires. And I think he's got something else already started. It's probably been like, what, a year? It's like, which is, again, like he'll be going out and raising money again. And if those, you know, VCs are, are an option in the future, it's like, yeah. I'd rather work with them. You know what you're, what you're going to get. Yeah. He's actually doing that right now. He's raising money for maybe his new product. And you know, this lets him do it from like a base of stability where he feels like he could swing mm -hmm. for the fences on his next one after getting this like nice win under his belt. And this is like the cool thing about acquisitions. It's like, you know, this guy worked hard, built something really nice, a good asset goes to the next person who continues to grow it. And then he's free to like do his next thing. And that's basically yeah. what we're providing people as well. Yeah. So what is, maybe I think I've seen it in the corner of my eye. It's like a finance product. Yeah. Financial planning, wealth planning. I'm not <laughs> sure who he's targeting exactly, but. Himself. That's clearly what he does. <laughs> he, had, he had a SaaS business and, and built analytics for it. And then 
he got a bunch of money and now he has to build a tool to, to manage. <laughs> so we just need to put him into any situation that, you know, he's got the pain point and he'll build something for it. That's a good sign. It's a good. Yeah, founder. for sure. Yeah. I don't know how he's doing. He's raising publicly. If anyone is interested, you could check it out. It's on. Uh, I don't know how he's doing this actually. It must be on one of Republic? the big platforms. It must be like Republic or something. But he's been tweeting about it all week. Um, have you ever participated in any of those? No, I never have. Yeah, I've done I, AngelList deals as like an angel, but nothing on Republic. How is that? Uh, super slick. AngelList is just an amazing product and everyone I've interacted with over there is great. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Republic stuff I've participated in like friends or like projects I've worked on, you know, put, it, put some like token amount, nothing serious, like, a, you know, a serious investment, but do it as like a, almost like a better option than GoFundMe or Kickstarter. But um, yeah, I was, I'm not really sure if that's always a great reflection on the business, right? It's like, it, it kind of shows how, if that's an elitist attitude or like a VC, but it seems like a funky thing to do first, right? If that's your, your first option, then you go out to, to VCs. It's like, I don't know. Some people, I, I have heard people say like, I would, would never do this again with my own money now that I know I could raise even a, a small amount from, you know, the folks out there. Uh, so it used to be a huge negative signal. Like, a, I mean, it, it basically meant you couldn't raise from normal VCs or angels. So right. you had to throw it to like the not sophisticated investors for like $100 here, $100 there. But uh, now better and better companies are like, hey, I want to carve out one to $5 million in my round and I want to open it up to our users. So I think Rome did this, Gumro did this, maybe a few others that were like, they're actually competitive rounds and they could have easily got more money, but they wanted to carve out a little bit and give it back to their users and let them invest for the long term. So I guess it's becoming less of a negative signal nowadays. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I think that's super cool, especially in the case of things like Rome, where you have like a psychotic deranged user base. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding uh but in all seriousness it's like those are your diehard like you know finally somebody has built the thing for them and you know it's gonna be around 30 years from now i think you mentioned this in the past it's, it reminds me of like you know old school linux software or something where it's like oh this is the thing you know m the best text editor in the world and i'm going to use it forever and like vi or nano or vim these things are all you know people just love them and they're ergonomic and they work well and you know eventually they they kind of like supersede commercial product they just become like part of because right like eventually rome somebody will you know it fast forwarding 50 years from now it's not going to be a company i'm assuming maybe it is but let's say it's just you know the the founding team is no longer doing it anymore but like it's still like a pattern a way of doing things that uh electronically you know you could see people just okay, we're going to take that platform and open source it or whatever. And just seeing like that style of, of program become its own thing. You know, as I, I think back to like the mouse pointer, right? Back in the day, it just becomes ubiquitous with how people use things. Like somebody did invent all of this stuff that we use, um, but it eventually just gets absorbed by <laughs> the, the larger, you know, computing mindset or whatever. Mind Do you still use Rome? I don't. No, I don't anymore. I I would love to, but I actually have I'm back down to something awful and 
it's just pen and paper, which is totally deranged, but it's, I do pen and paper. I have two journal. I have like the daily notepad. It's like a legal pad. And then I do like my nightly week weekend journals, which is like strategic stuff of like, okay, what do I need to be doing this week, month, year? And then I review my notes on it. So I go through like a, a legal pad every two, three weeks. Do you copy it, it into a digital format ever? Or it's all just those on paper? Yeah. So, you know, everything goes into my calendar. That's like my operating log. So if it's important, it ends up in my calendar as something I'm doing. Like that's the digital result. I'd love to get it all digital. I would tell you like my, I spend so much time in front of the computer that I just, I need to get away from it. Like I'll go down to the beach, I'll go down to the water or whatever and like, bring a notepad. And that's the part I, I like just getting away from my computer. Yeah. I still use Rome and I love it. I think it's going to be the worst venture investment ever. <laughs> I <don't, laughs> Why? I, I mean, I think they raised it like a $200 million valuation or something. Oh, uh, oh. I just, there aren't that many people like me. I don't think it's the learning curve is like pretty extreme. And I feel like they're just getting deeper and deeper with like a, a small base of customers. <laughs> I love it. I think it's uh, awesome. Yeah. I, I love it as well. Um, but there is like Obsidian, which is like an open source version. So I just, uh, I think if, I mean, if they try to raise prices too much, people just hop to the open source and it's, you know, a pretty simple product with a pretty small user base, which is a, a tough combination for like a, a hopeful unicorn in the future. You know what I think is a better model for this than, than venture capital. I mean, cause yeah, that's, that's not going to be a great, there's just no way that someone's going to buy it for 200 million, but in, in hopefully they prove us wrong, but was, there was a company we looked at once called invoice ninja. And this was a cool platform where they open source the product, but they will host it for you. And it's a common platform uh, or common way to do these sort of like community led products where it's maybe it starts open source or you can self host. Um, I could have totally seen it go that way where they become the open source that you can, you can run, but then you have basically the sponsored version or paid version that they host, or, you know, you can download and use it's, it's all getting murky, right? There's these, um, different copyleft licensing. There's all these different ways of kind of distributing and supporting software now, and it's not really thought out yet. So it's like venture is definitely the most, uh, What's the right word for it? It's not the, necessarily the most lucrative. It's probably the best way to get a bunch of cash in and try to go, you know, what do they call it? Um, what's that book? Not hyperscaling. Oh, blitz scaling. Yeah. Blitz scaling. Yeah. Like, I don't know that you need to, to blitz scale Rome. Like that's appropriate for venture in my mind. But it's like, if you want to just go deep on features and raise some money to support your developer, like team, I think that's probably sufficient. Yeah, uh, I don't, <laughs> you'd have to stretch pretty far to see like network effects or something in Rome. Um, I think this may be a situation where it's like you could do a token offering, like in the crypto world, people could buy up a percent. Or yeah. like, I mean, that's just Republic on the blockchain, basically. So mm -hmm. you could go to users and be like, hey, we want a few million bucks to you know invest in the product, pay ourselves. And then from there, we could have stability and like be around forever. Yeah, um, I want to get that Rome airdrop. Yeah, I think that would have made more sense, but also that didn't exist, you know, three, four years ago to do that. Anything else you want to talk about here? Nope. 
Nope. Can't think of anything else. We've just been, I mean, do we want to, do you want to do an update on the portfolio and acquisitions or should we do um, that each time we record or do you want to keep that private? I don't know how interesting it is to people. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I would love to talk about the deals we're seeing, but that's not cool. Like we're not, that's not exactly like, it's not cool to do the founders. Some of these things are confidential. So I don't know if we can really talk about live deals. No, I, we can't talk about live, live deals. deals. We could talk about, uh, you know, dead deals, I think, as long as we keep it vague or we could bring people on to talk about deals that are public, you know, something they came across. I think that would be cool. Some other podcasts do something like that. I'd like hmm. to start having more guests, which I know we've said like a bunch, but now we've, you know, narrowed in on a niche that we're more interested in talking about. So I'd be down to talk to a lot of acquisition folks. If anyone's listening and knows a good person, you know, reach out, we'll get them on the podcast. Cool. Uh, yeah. So that's well, it. That's it. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening.